Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. Cancer is the enemy within us, starting when our own cells get damaged and go rogue, multiplying out of control and spreading around the body. But how can we use new genetic knowledge to beat it? Instead of thinking about breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer, we may be looking for a group of cancers that have a particular gene at their base. Plus, decoding the wheat genome, finding out where birds came from, and our gene of the month is more art than science. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for December 2012 with me, Dr. Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. At its heart, cancer is a disease caused by faulty and damaged genes. It's usually a combination of the damage we pick up over a lifetime, as well as our own unique tapestry of genetic variation and, in some cases, specific gene faults that we inherit. To find out more about how faulty genes are involved in cancer and how our understanding of them is helping to shape the cancer treatment of the future, I spoke to Dr Judy Garber from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Well, it turns out that we have many genes in the body that have as their main job keeping the function of cells accurate and particularly making sure that when cells divide and make new cells that their genetic material is exactly the same as the parent cell so that no mistakes are passed on. And the genes that help make sure that cells can police themselves and make sure that they're correct are genes that must be functional for the cells to be accurate. When one of those genes doesn't do its job, then it's easier for mistakes to occur and for cancers to develop. So the inherited piece of this is that in normal cells, we usually have two copies of each gene, and both of them usually work just fine. But in people who have an inherited risk, one copy of the gene may not work so well. And usually the cells are fine with just one working copy, but when something happens to knock out the working copy, some carcinogen exposure, radiation, or chemicals, whatever it is that allows the normal copy to disappear, now the cell is more defenseless in that way and cancer can occur. Now, what are some of the big hitters that we already know about, some of the the genes that we know really do increase cancer risk if you inherit a, a dodgy copy? Well, I think we've known for a long time that cancers can cluster in families. So we've known about the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes that were found in the early 90s to explain a subset of breast cancer families. We know about a lot of genes that give familial risk of colon cancer, and we probably don't recognize as often as we should that some of those Families also get too much uterine or endometrial cancer, cancer of the womb, and ovarian cancer. 
And then, unfortunately, we know some cancer syndromes that affect children, and that's always the hardest, I think. Now, what are we starting to discover about some maybe less common or, or harder to find gene faults that are, that are running in families and increasing cancer risk? What are the new things that are coming through? So I think it's been easier to find genes to explain rare cancers and very powerful genes that give an enormous amount of risk and would make anyone wonder about a family. But now we're starting to find more information about genes that are a little less powerful and that are probably a little more common in the population. And we have a lot of work to do to be more exact about their effects on cancer. Some of this is happening because the technology has improved for analyzing genes in general. And so we're finding more changes in genes that we know have a role to play in cancers and therefore also apparently in cancer susceptibility or cancer risk. Now we hear a lot about how cancer treatment is moving towards personalized medicine. So you take a sample of a tumor, you do a genetic analysis and you say, okay, you need this drug and you need this drug. How does that interplay on top of what might already be going on in in someone's cells, just the kind of gene profile that they've inherited because they're them? So there are many ways for that to work. One way people expect to be an issue is that some of the changes in the tumors started out as changes in some people in their original genes. And the tumors that they get have a particular biology because of the contribution of that original gene. And you find it by looking at the tumor genetics and then saying, well, wait, let's look also at the person's own genes and get rid of the ones that were abnormal to begin with. So that that's one possibility. The other is um, that because we're going to be looking at all these genes, we're going to learn about genes that affect very basic things about drugs we've known all along, like the metabolism of drugs. So why is it that two people can take the same dose of a medication and one has side effects and the other does not? So it's probably nothing about the drug, but it may be the way the person handles that drug in their own body. And of course, that can be affected by lifestyle and other factors, but some of it is determined by genes that affect drug metabolism. So we should learn more about that too. Maybe that can help us avoid some side effects. It's seeming to me that cancer is is now as unique as we are. An individual's cancer is, is almost completely unique. That seems to me to present a huge challenge for doctors and scientists. What do you think are the challenges and how are we working to overcome them? Well, I think that the challenges certainly are huge. Cancers are, to some extent, unique, and they develop changes that are unique. But if they're using the same set of fundamental genes that drive them, then hopefully we'll be able to group them just differently. Instead of thinking about breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer, we may be looking for a group of cancers that have a particular gene at their base. And the fact that they occurred in a different tissue may not matter quite as much as we used to think. But, you know, this requires a huge amount of analysis and a lot of thinking, and unfortunately that's all pretty expensive, so there's some of that to contend with. We're entering a, an era now where there's just a huge amount of data coming out from genome sequencing, these big cancer genome projects and things like that. And even people themselves, you can pay maybe around a $1,000, £1,000 now and have your own genome sequenced. How do we try and get to grips with this kind of information? And then what, what might people do with it if they find they have a, a risky gene? 
The first question, I think, is fortunately the province of people who love big data sets and they are out there. And the computer uh, nerds. Those computer nerds, they're finally going to really come in handy. They can, um, they can take this information and help sort through all of this, the noise to try to find the music. And I, I think that fortunately is what they're good at. The challenge will be to try to make the information available, and to annotate it. And by that, I mean that it's not enough just to know your genes. You have to know about the clinical impact. And so you're going to need information about the tumors and response to treatment and family history and things to give you context to interpret all the rest. So that's just more data, but I think that will be, will be important. And if someone, say, has a test done either by a researcher or pays for it and then discovers they have a mutation, I mean... How do we know if it's actually important? What does it mean for the person or for their family? Yes. Well, that's, I, I hope that's where um, programs like those that exist in the UK diffusely and, and um, elsewhere in the world, where people have tried to think about this if, issue. So if you happen to have an alteration in a gene that's well-studied, like the colon genes or breast cancer, then there's information to help you know what that might mean for you and for your children, your siblings, your family members. If it's a gene that hasn't been so well studied, then perhaps you're someone who can contribute your information so that we can have research now give information to the next group to come along. And do a little future looking for me. Where do you think we're going to be, let's say, in in five years' time in this kind of area? Well, within five years, I think almost everyone will be having their tumor sequenced, and that means that they will also have some of their own blood sequenced to try and understand the genetics. And for treatment, that will be hopefully allowing us to use novel medications that are more effective and less toxic. And for our blood, it means we're going to learn more about our risk of cancer and other conditions, and we're going to have to think about how best to handle that information. That was Judy Garber from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Coming up later, we'll be taking a closer look at cancer genetics and find out what sequencing genomes from hundreds or even thousands of tumours could tell us about the disease. But now it's time to find out what happened at the Genetic Society Autumn Meeting, which was held at the Royal Society in November and celebrated 25 years of the scientific journal Genes and Development. Professor Steve West from the Cancer Research UK London Research Institute was awarded the annual Genetic Society Medal and gave a fascinating lecture looking back on his work on how damage to our DNA gets detected and repaired. It's a vital part of our own cancer defences. We also heard talks from experts from around the globe discussing the very latest progress in genetics research. To get the lowdown and find out a bit more about the meeting, I spoke to Professor Dirk Jander Koning from the Swedish University for Agricultural Sciences, who's a member of the Genetic Society Committee. So the Genetic Society organises two meetings, uh, a spring meeting and an autumn meeting, and they are organised or planned by our members, and it is very much... What they, they come with proposals. Um, this one is a specific one because the journal Genes and Development was established 25 years ago with the society as a co-founder. And so we really this meeting was really about the science that is presented in that journal. So we have now seen two days of very detailed, very really the cutting edge of the DNA and the RNA um, regulation and the consequences. But we can also, if you look forward to the spring meeting, we have much more 
vertical meeting there where we look at how genomics has delivered for healthcare and there we look much more from the science to the implementation in uh, personalized medicine. So the meetings vary in content and in topic as well as in scientific depth. And what are some of the themes that have been covered in uh, the meeting over the past two days? So if I take my, uh, my personal highlights, it started yesterday very much with the, um, the DNA regulation, the DNA uh, repair, how the whole cell machinery works to make sure all these processes that make us what we are uh, function correctly. And that moved on uh, later in the day with the thing that brought it all together for me was the medal lecture by Steve West where he really illustrated how some of the genes that we know as cancer genes like, like BRCA2 really in their normal day job act as a chaperone protein that makes sure that DNA repair functions well. And yeah, that, that for me was fascinating that to, to find out what all these suspect genes do in their normal day job. I thought it was really interesting because he's a biochemist, but you've given him a Genetic Society Award, and uh, I thought his talk was, was excellent, really engaging. I fully agree, but the, again, Genetic Society medals are nominated by our members um, and then voted for. So it is clear that within the Genetic Society, someone like Steve West is very much appreciated for his contributions. So we don't, we don't check someone's CV before we make sure whether they're eligible for an award. It is really... Really if, a geneticist. <laughs> exactly. If you make a useful contribution, your colleagues or your peers will nominate you at some stage. And finally, it's, uh, we've got the last afternoon of the meeting. What are you looking forward to this afternoon? I'm very much looking forward to uh, Nick Hasty from Edinburgh, who's a, a formal... Uh, medal winner of the society, how he puts it all in the, in the context of uh, human diseases that we have sort of already gotten a glimpse from some of the earlier talks. But, so I'm really looking forward to that in particular. And as well as listening to all the fantastic talks we've heard, it's obvious here that lots and lots of scientists are bringing them together from all over the world to talk and collaborate. Do you know that fruitful collaborations come from meetings like this? Um, I don't have any... Uh, examples at hand but I do know there is a lot of uh, interactions over dinner and, uh, and discussions so uh, you also seen that we have very lively discussions uh, on the basis of the, the talks and I can assure you those have continued over the dinners that we've had over the last two days so uh, that's been very very fruitful from that perspective. The next Genetic Society meeting will be in April 2013 and it's on the topic of the genomics of health and society. If you're interested in coming along, there's more information on the Genetic Society website at genetics.org.uk. And now here's a roundup of the rest of this month's genetics news. Writing in the journal PLOS Genetics, researchers in the US have developed a genetic roadmap that could speed up the search for new treatments for Huntington's disease. Led by Robert Hughes, the researchers used a technique called RNA interference to systematically switch off nearly 8,000 genes in human cells, searching for genes that play an important role in the disease and affect its severity. This is the largest genome-wide search in human cells so far, and it's thrown up a number of exciting potential drug targets, including a gene called RRAS, which they're now investigating. The researchers have also made all their data publicly available so scientists around the world can get stuck in and look at new targets for Huntington's. Scientists led by Guntram Bork at the University of Ulm in Germany and David Adams at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute in Cambridge have tracked down the faulty gene responsible for a rare disorder that causes problems with brain development. 
Using a combination of genome sequencing from four patients with blepharophimosis ptosis intellectual disability syndrome and also mouse models, the scientists discovered that mistakes in a gene called UBE3B are responsible for the syndrome. This is the first time this gene's been linked to a human disease. The UBE3B gene is involved in a process called ubiquitinylation, where enzymes inside cells stick little molecular tags on certain proteins, marking them out for destruction. Mice with faults in the gene show the same symptoms as human patients. They're born with smaller bodies and brains, and they also have problems with cholesterol metabolism. The research highlights the importance of using animal models in combination with human genetic studies to help us understand rare and complex human diseases. The scientists now hope to use their mouse model as a basis for developing therapies for the disease to help sufferers in the future. Writing in the journal Cancer Cell, scientists in California, led by Mikey Sander and Matthias Hebrock, have uncovered the events at the very beginning of pancreatic cancer. Survival from the disease is currently very poor, and it's often not diagnosed until it's too late to treat effectively. It was thought that pancreatic cancer started from the lining or epithelial cells in the pancreatic ducts, but this new research shows that these cells don't start growing in response to faults in genes that are known to be involved in driving pancreatic cancer. Instead, the new data suggests that it might be acyna cells in the pancreas that lie at the heart of the disease. Inflammation, a known risk factor for pancreatic cancer, helps convert these cells into duct-like precancerous cells in combination with overactivity of a gene called SOX9. The new discovery helps shed light on the origins of pancreatic cancer and significantly increases our understanding of how the disease starts and how we might tackle it. The genome of your breakfast toast, or at least the wheat that goes into it, is surprisingly complex. But now an international team of scientists from the UK, US and Germany have published the first analysis of the wheat genome, writing in the journal Nature. The research has revealed that wheat has around 96,000 genes, and understanding what they do and how they work and interact will help to improve wheat crops as the world changes. The scientists hope their analysis will speed up the development of new varieties of wheat that can cope better with disease, drought and other stresses that cause crop failure. As food security and climate change become ever more pressing, research like this is helping to put food on our plates and bread in our toasters in the future. And if you want to find out more about any of these stories, the references are all on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com slash genetics. You're listening to the Naked Genetics podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. Still to come, we'll be finding out where birds came from and brushing up on a rather artistic gene of the month. But now it's time to delve a bit deeper into cancer genomes. At the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, Dr Peter Campbell is joint head of the Cancer Genome Project, an ambitious research programme aimed at analysing the genetic code in thousands of tumours from patients around the world. I started by asking him what kind of gene changes were involved in cancer and where they come from. Most of the gene changes that we're talking about that drive cancer accumulate during your life as you, as you go through life. Basically, as we're walking around, we're exposed to things that are, that are damaging our DNA. Cigarette smoke is a classic example. Um, sunlight's another example. And there are also processes that can happen within cells that, that mean that they can accumulate these genetic changes. I remember hearing that just being alive and breathing oxygen is probably more damaging to your DNA than anything else. I don't know about than anything else, but, um, but, but it is true that, that these mutations occur pretty much throughout our life in some or other cells in our body. And 
if we lived long enough and didn't die of, of other things, then it would be a statistical inevitability that we would eventually develop cancer, every one of us. So what are you trying to do with the Cancer Genome Project to understand some of these gene faults that are involved in cancer? The really exciting thing is that these uh, genetic faults, these mutations that, that can cause cancer, they tend to be recurrent. So if you sequence, for example, um, some leukemias, uh, you will find that, that the same genetic changes will be found in multiple people. And, and those genetic changes are the ones that are driving the leukemia. And that then acts as a natural target for diagnosis. We can use those genetic changes to diagnose someone's cancer accurately and also for therapy so that we can design treatments that specifically block the action of those drugs. What we're trying to do here at the Cancer Genome Project is to, is to do this, is to characterise all of the genes involved in cancer in a systematic way. We take hundreds and thousands of patients with cancer and we sequence the entire genome of their cancers and then by looking across different patients we can look at those genes which are most frequently involved in a given cancer type and then that's how we we set set up the targets for 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 future diagnostic and and treatment when you look at a cancer cell often its dna is pretty messed up there's a lot of things that are wrong with it bits of dna are stuck to other bits of dna there's all sorts of gene faults how do you tell what's an important gene fault in a cancer cell and what's just just there for the ride it's absolutely true. Cancers can have tens of thousands of, of genetic changes, mutations, and probably actually only 10, 20, maybe a few more are actually responsible for turning that cell into a cancer cell. The way that we identify those 10 or 20 amongst this morass of other things uh, is to look across different patients. So if we sequence enough different patients, the same genes keep cropping up as, as recurrently mutated, and that tells us that they're important for, the, for, the, for those particular cancers. You talk about thousands of patients. This is only something that's been possible thanks to recent advances in technology. How long now does it take to, to sequence a, a tumour genome? When we started in the, in the original Human Genome Project, which completed uh, about 10 years ago, uh, it took uh, a number of institutes around the world about 10 years and, and many billions of, of, of pounds to, to sequence the original human genome. Now we can do an entire cancer genome plus the normal genome from that same person in about a week for £10,000. In the future, it's likely that we'll be doing this for less than a thousand pounds, and in even shorter time than, than a week. So, the the change has been absolutely remarkable. The really exciting thing is that, from from a scientist's point of view, this is leading to all sorts of new and exciting insights into the way that cancers develop, and it's an extraordinary time to be doing this kind of research. Looking at some of the results that you have already for the Cancer Genome Project, how many? cancer genomes have you already looked at and has there been anything intriguing surprising what sort of things have you found so far i guess overall with the um the latest sequencing technology we have looked at i guess several hundred patients with cancer the kinds of things that we're finding are remarkable we're finding all sorts of new cancer genes so these are genes that are clearly driving some cancers um, some of them, we had no clue before that they were even remotely involved in cancer. 
and yet suddenly these these mutations crop up and then we've identified a whole new pathway that we can begin to think about drugs developing drugs to target. We've also found some remarkable processes that are actually causing these mutations in, in the cancers. So the, the actual, not just the genes which are being targeted by the mutations, but actually what's causing the mutations in the first place. These are really remarkable. I, I mean, I think rather naively going into this kind of study expected it to be rather consistent across patients, but in, in fact it's completely complex. There are all sorts of different processes going on in, in, in a number of different cancers. You can tell what a breast cancer will look like, and it can look quite different to, say, a, a pancreatic cancer. They'll have completely different patterns of mutations. And that's telling us something about how these genetic changes are occurring. And that's just as remarkable as, as the discovery of, of new cancer genes in terms of the sort of scientific value. Finding out all these things about cancer genomes, about how complex they are, about all the different faults and mutations and different ways they can get messed up, does it make you feel optimistic or slightly pessimistic about whether we will beat cancer in the future? I think beating cancer is an unattainable goal for all cancers in everybody. I mean, I don't think there will ever be... I don't think cancer will ever be cured for every patient that develops it. What I think we will find is that we continue to make iterative progress. So we will develop drugs that have more effectiveness. There will be a fraction of patients who benefit tremendously from those patients. There will be more cures, but cancer will always be a devastating diagnosis to receive. It will always be quite challenging to treat. But what I hope is that in more patients as we go forward, we understand their cancers better and we can get treatments that are both better tolerated and more effective and we build up momentum towards, towards improving the lives of people with cancer. That was Peter Campbell from the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. And now it's time to look at your burning genetics questions with the help of naked scientist Louise Anthony. Hello, and this month I'm talking to Dr David Norman from the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Cambridge. Benoit in Bristol wanted to know, how exactly did birds evolve from dinosaurs? Is there thought to have been a breakthrough mutation? Or did various kinds of birds evolve and intermix bird-like characteristics in a more parallel process? Dr Norman. That's a very complicated sort of question, but... um... Birds evolved from dinosaurs, and if you look back at the history of the fossils that um, seem to go through the transition from being genuinely dinosaurian to genuinely bird-like, um, you see a very, very gradual transition, changes in the, the anatomy of these creatures. In essence, what you find is that there's a trend within carnivorous dinosaurs, things known as theropods, which become progressively smaller, at least one branch of them. And that smaller branch changes its anatomy. One of the most important changes is the reduction of the tail. The tail becomes thin and very whippy. And that completely changes the balance of the animal and the way its legs work. Uh, As a result, they become very nimble, very delicate creatures that are capable of moving very rapidly. And if you link that with how they must have worked as biological organisms, then if you build a little nippy creature, then it has to be fueled by a very powerful little engine. And that's the beginning of a change in the the way in which the metabolism or the speed at which these animals work changes. 
So the smaller you are, the more active you are, the more, in a sense, dynamic your general makeup. And once you get to that point, not only do you become more nimble and more agile, but you also need to be, to some extent, more intelligent. And you also suffer a problem, which is that when you're very small, your surface area becomes very large. As a result, you can lose body heat to the environment very quickly. You need insulation. So you end up with small, very nimble, very intelligent, insulated, that is to say feathered or filament-covered creatures that look awfully like birds. And honestly, the transition from those small, nimble kind of wrist dinosaurs that probably ate small animals, maybe insects, through to genuine birds which have an insulated covering and are capable of flapping flight is almost imperceptible. So you go from one conventional dinosaur through to a feathered avian or a bird-like creature in a very, very smooth transition. It's actually quite a marvellous example of evolution. If you've got any questions about genes, DNA and genetics that you'd like us to answer, just email them to genetics at thenakedscientist.com, tweet us at Naked Genetics or post on our Facebook page. And finally, our gene of the month is all arty. It's Van Gogh. A gene found in fruit flies, Van Gogh was first discovered in 1998 by researchers at the University of Virginia. It helps cells to know which way is up, a type of gene known as a tissue polarity gene, and it works together with the charmingly named frizzled and prickle genes. Flies with mutations in Van Gogh have unusual swirly hair and bristle patterns, reminiscent of their namesake's brushwork if you kind of squint a bit and use your imagination. Van Gogh is also known as strabismus in flies, and vertebrates, including humans, have two versions, Vang L1 and Vang L2. Faults in the human version of Van Gogh are linked to problems with developing a structure called the neural tube as a baby grows in the womb, leading to spina bifida, as well as being linked to certain cancers, including liver cancer. More recent studies have found vertebrate Van Gogh popping up in many different roles in development, so it's definitely a gene that's more than just a pretty picture. I'll be back again in the new year looking at the genetics of food and fat. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the main Naked Scientist Facebook page, nakedscientist.com slash Facebook, or by tweeting at Naked Genetics. And don't forget that every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is available on iTunes or online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast has been brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes, and I wish you a joyful Christmas. Christmas.